You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. What's going on, Revolution Church? We are so glad that you are joining us this weekend as we are in the eighth and final week of our sermon series called Church on the Move. Now, just a reminder, the reason we're doing this series is because we have tried to do our best to prepare every single person at Revolution Church, including myself, for the move that is taking place this week. Uh, This week is our final week at the mall campus on Sunday, and next week, October 22nd, is when we are officially launching at our new facility, the old Rocky Top 10, the new Revolution Church. So for those of you that typically join us online, This is going to be the last pre-recorded sermon. We've done that for a couple of weeks just to make sure all the equipment and everything is working uh, at the new facility. And uh, next week we will be live. We'll be live at around 9.30, 9.45. That'll be the service that we're streaming. So make sure you tune back in for that. We are so, so excited uh, about what God has done this year and what he's going to do this week. Well, in this last week of this sermon series, Uh, I'm going to preach a message to you about three parables. Uh, Maybe they're literal stories. One of them is a literal story, but uh, three parables that Jesus told. And I call these the lost parables, the lost parables. We've got an absolute ton of scripture to get through today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to go through verses 1 through 32. And we're going to take a look at the lost sheep that Jesus talked about, the lost coins that Jesus talked about, and then finally the lost son that Jesus talks about. So let's get started in verse 1 with no further ado of these incredible parables that Jesus gave us and what we can learn from them. Luke 15 verse 1 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Stop right here. Let me get you to understand the context of all three of these parables. The context of this and the reason Jesus gave these parables is because he had Pharisees or religious leaders that were criticizing him. So as we get into this, you're going to see Jesus, and I'm going to teach you some things that Jesus actually says to debunk some of the religious ideology of the day. So here they are criticizing Jesus for welcoming sinners and eating with them. In verse 3, it continues and says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice. If you're watching online right now, I want you to type in all caps in the comments underneath, rejoice. In every one of these parables, you're going to see rejoicing taking place. This is a theme over and over. Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Now, another side note, okay? When it talks about the sheep in this first parable, understand that we are the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd, and we are the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd, and we are the sheep. Now, this really is insulting when you think about it. Why? Because sheep are dumb. Okay, y'all? Sheep are dumb. 
This is why we are in need of such a great shepherd. I'm going to cut to a video now showing you, uh, giving you an example of how dumb sheep are. Well, if you watch that video, you saw a sheep that uh, its shepherd pulled him out of a hole, but then it jumped right back in, and that's every single one of us. This is why we need a great shepherd and we need Jesus. Continue in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing, there's that word again, in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In this last verse, when Jesus says there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons uh, who aren't, he's playing on a religious saying of the day. The Pharisees of the day had a saying, and it went like this. There is rejoicing and joy in heaven when one sinner is obliterated. You see what Jesus does here? He turns the religious ideology of the day upside down on his head and says, no, 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 not when they're obliterated, when they repent, there is rejoicing in heaven. A couple of things that really sets the tone for all three of these parables. First, I want you to notice this, and you're going to see this with every one of these parables. Notice that Jesus is the shepherd in this story, and Jesus leaves the found things to go find the lost things. He leaves the 99 to go find the one. What does this tell us? On the scale of priorities, sinners repenting is extremely high in the kingdom. Now, there are other things that are very important that we do as a church. But in the kingdom, one of the most important things, and what we've talked about is the main mission of the church is going and finding lost people, sinners repenting. I heard a story about Billy Graham that he was in Nova Scotia at a crusade that they were having. This was years ago, and it was a two-night crusade that they were going to have. And the first night, uh, someone was preaching, but Billy Graham, of course, being the most popular, was going to close the entire crusade on the second night. Well, he decided to go to the service on the first night, and uh, he goes to the service and sits in the back with a hat and glasses on. And at the altar call time, he calls for people to come forward, and he noticed the man next to him appeared to be struggling. It was almost like he was under conviction. Well, the story goes that Billy Graham asked the man, Sir, do you want to be saved today? Would you like to go up front? I'll walk up front with you if you'd like to make Christ your Savior today. Well, as the story goes, the man thought about it for a second, looked at Billy Graham, didn't know it was Billy Graham, and said, No, I'm going to wait till the big guns come tomorrow night and Billy Graham preaches. Listen, y'all, there are no big guns except for Jesus. The only shepherd that we have is Jesus. There's no preachers that are big guns. There's no denominations that are big guns. Jesus is the good shepherd. In the story of the lost sheep, I want you to notice this, that there are people that Jesus himself goes after. In other words, the lost sheep, typically we don't have hardly anything to do with, if anything at all. Jesus goes after them himself. We see this in people that have dreams. We see this in people that have visions. We see this in people that have never really even talked to anybody about the gospel, but they get a hold of God's word, 
And through the power of the Holy Spirit pursuing them, they meet Christ. This is Jesus going after. Well, in the second parable, we see what we're responsible for. Listen as Jesus talks about the lost coin. In verse 8, we pick it up, and he says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice. There's that word again. Rejoice. You see a theme here. When you find, when someone gets found, there is rejoicing. Rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, listen to this, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Most people don't know this, but when Jesus talks about the lost coin, he's specifically speaking to a special headdress that a woman would wear at her wedding and keep with her. And on this headdress, it would have a silver chain with 10 gold coins attached to it. Well, if a woman was to lose one of these coins, it would be the equivalent of a woman today losing her wedding ring because that headdress was representative of the covenant that she had made and the vows that she took in her marriage. I can remember I was 19 years old. Brooke and I, who's my wife, had been dating for about two years, and I knew she was the one that I wanted to marry. And so at 19 years old, I didn't have a dime to my name. I didn't have hardly anything. I went to a uh, uh, jewelry store in Cookville, Tennessee, and I found a what I thought at the time was a bling ring, y'all. I'm talking like probably the most expensive thing I ever bought and one of the most expensive things I've ever bought to this day because I really wanted Brooke to have a nice wedding ring. I can still remember she liked baguette diamonds. She liked a princess cut diamond. And this ring had both of those things in it. And so I bought this engagement ring and I I did like 90 days, same as cash or something like that. And I paid it off within 90 days. And I gave that ring to her. And she always talks about how she absolutely loves her wedding ring. Well, one day I came home from work and this was in Knoxville. This was probably 15 or 16 years ago that this happened. I wasn't even a minister yet. And my wife, Brooke, was tearing the house apart, going crazy, because what had happened was her half-carat princess-cut diamond on top of her ring had fallen off somewhere, and she didn't know where it was. And so she was tearing the house apart. She eventually did find it. Uh, It was actually in the floorboard of her car. Somehow it fell off into the floorboard of her car, and we got it repaired. But this is the idea that Jesus is giving. Think of a woman losing her wedding ring, what would she do? She'd call everybody in the house together and say, we have got to find this wedding ring. The kids would be tearing stuff apart. The husband would have to help her. She'd retrace all of her steps. She'd look for days and weeks if she had to. She may even report it to the police that it was stolen. Please look out for this. Going to pawn shops, seeing if she could find her wedding ring, if she lost it. This is the intensity of which we go after lost people. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples, is we're the ones who are supposed to tear the house apart. We're the ones who are flipping the couch cushions over. When it comes to the lost coins, Jesus uses us to go and find them in the highways and the byways. Notice in this verse, we see this thing reiterated again, that heaven loves when people get saved. Heaven 
rejoices when people get saved. We say this all the time when we do our baptism services at Revolution Church. Heaven has a party when people get saved. In this parable specifically, it says that the angels rejoice when someone repents and gets saved. You know, if you look through Scripture, you'll find that there are only three times that angels rejoice. The first one you can find in Psalm 148 and 1 Chronicles 16, that the angels rejoice over God being God. The second can be found in the book of Revelation chapter 5, and it tells us that the angels rejoice about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And then thirdly, the angels rejoice about sinners repenting. That's a pretty, pretty big deal that they rejoice about sinners repenting. If heaven loves it, then we've got to say this too, hell hates it the most when people get saved. The enemy, Satan, and his demons would love nothing more than for Revolution Church to get comfortable, to say we've arrived. Here we are next week. We're moving into this new facility, and we're good to go. Let's just sing our music. Let's just do our Bible studies, and let's forget about the lost coins all around us that we need to go flipping couch cushions over. We need to go checking the pawn shops to see if we can find them, the lost coins. Lastly, and this takes up the majority of the Scripture today, we've got a lot to read here, is Jesus tells a parable about a lost son, about a lost son. Now notice, progressively, with every one of these, the lost thing becomes more valuable. First it was a sheep, then it was a coin. Now it's an actual son, someone you love. Listen to what he says, this parable of the lost son, parable of the awesome dad is what you could call it. Verse 11, Jesus continued, and there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Understand this. Understand how this starts out. We read this and we don't really understand this, but traditionally uh, in Jewish families, if you had two sons, when the father died, the older brother would get two-thirds of the estate and the younger brother would get one-third of the estate. The fact that the younger brother is coming to the father now and he's saying, I want my one-third of your estate now, is completely offensive. This is the younger son spitting in the face of his father. And essentially what he's saying, traditionally, according to Jewish culture, is, Dad, I wish you were dead. So give me my one-third of my inheritance that I would have got if you were dead now. Completely offensive. Verse 13 continues, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Don't miss this either. It's very significant that he's working with pigs. We talked about how Sheep are dumb, right? Well, if sheep are dumb, pigs are disgusting. Pigs were so unclean in the Jewish culture of the day that most people didn't even refer to them as pigs. They referred to them as the abomination. And here he is working with the most unclean animal in most people's eyes. It's very significant. It says in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, look at the father's reaction. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. If you don't know, we're the prodigal son, and Jesus is the father here. The son said to the father, this is a picture of repentance, the salvation process. Father, I have sinned against you. Recognize you're a sinner. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. Very significant. We're going to talk about the robe and put it on him. Put a ring. The ring is significant. On his finger and sandals. The sandals are significant. We're going to talk about that. On his feet. Bring the fatted calf. We'll talk about that too. And kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, it's so telling of the attitude of the older son because he can't even identify his own brother as being a part of his family. You notice that? He's so full of pride that he says, this son of yours. In other words, I'm not connected to him. He's your son. Couldn't even call him his brother who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Your reaction to people being born again or coming home to the father's house shows the depth of your relationship with Jesus. Notice that there was no hesitation by the father. His younger son comes home hanging out with the most unclean animal there is, reeking of swine, stinky, sinful, broken. He's been disrespectful to him. He spit in his face, I wish you were dead maybe fried out of his mind. Maybe he's like an a, a opiate user or somebody that was addicted to pills today. He looks terrible. Maybe his teeth are gone. No telling what condition he was in, but we know it was bad. We don't know how extreme, but we know it was bad. And the father runs, throws his arms around him. See, the closer you are to Jesus, the more you act like him. And Jesus is the father in this parable symbolically. 
And we've got to understand that Jesus runs to people when they come home. He pursues them. He rejoices for them. He loves them. He clothes them in their nakedness. He places a ring on their finger. He covers their feet so they know wherever they walk, He will be with them. I believe that the focus of this parable, because again, remember the context, it's the highly religious Pharisees talking badly about Jesus, criticizing Jesus. The focus of this parable, really where Jesus wants it to be, is on the older son because of the audience he's speaking to, the religious people. And notice with the older son, notice that it's possible to be doing all kinds of different things for the father but have a cold heart and not rejoice when lost people come back to the father's house it's possible to know Jesus, but have so much religion and tradition, so much of a critical spirit, that instead of when people come home, when people get saved, when Jesus wraps his arm around people, when people are set free, you're not rejoicing. You're picking apart the process or saying, let's wait and see what happens in a month if they still love Jesus. The more religious, the more carnal, the more selfish you are, the more you're acting like the older son. Notice that the father does four things specifically. He puts a robe on his younger son when he comes in. And the robe is representative of the offense. All the offenses that the son has done to the father being covered. All the filth of the swine all over him is covered with the father's robe now. It's, it's representative of honor. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you messed up. But now we're going to honor you. He puts a ring on his finger. The ring is representative of the family. What he's saying is, you're not going to be a slave. You're a part of our family. You are my son. The ring also represented the authority of the father that he is saying he has. He kills a fatted calf. The fatted calf was something that was reserved for great feast, for celebration when people were rejoicing. It's similar today that when somebody has a birthday party, we know what all they have. They have presents and they have a big party, but there's always one specific thing they eat. Generally, you know what this is. You make them, right? It's a birthday cake. It's something special, something reserved for a birthday party. That's the idea with the fatted calf. It was the birthday cake of the day. This is what they killed when there was something big that was happening. And then finally, he gives him shoes. What do shoes represent in the New Testament? They represent peace. This is the Father saying, wherever you walk, I'm walking with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to give up on you. It's representative 
of what Jesus does with every single one of us when we get saved. We are covered by the blood of Christ. We've got the robe on. We are His children now and given the authority as a result of what Jesus did. We've got the ring on. There's a celebration in heaven where, in a sense, they kill the fatted calf and they rejoice. We see this over and over. And finally, we get to walk in the shoes of peace that only the Prince of Peace can give us. I was reading last week, and I read this story about Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, in the September of 1985, there was a pool. This is a weird example, but just follow me. Called the New Orleans Municipal Pool. A gigantic pool where thousands of people during the summer would come every single day in order to cool off. Well, in 1985, for the first time in the history of this pool, there were no drownings that took place. And so the lifeguards and the people that were over the pool were uh, overjoyed that for the first time in the history of the pool, there were no drownings. And so they had a party where about 200 people showed up at this pool to have a celebration party. About 100 of these people were actual lifeguards that worked at the pool. Well, at the end of the pool, the four lifeguards that were actually working the event, working this party, cleared everyone out of the pool. And in the deep end was a man in a suit that had drowned. The next day, the headline read this, Man Drowns surrounded by lifeguards celebrating their successful season. Our prayer for Revolution Church is that we do not forget that there are people drowning all around us. We don't get so caught up in the successful season that we've had as a church. What an incredible year. So many people getting saved. So many people getting baptized. The generosity of the church has been through the roof. So many great things that are happening at Revolution Church. I'm so overjoyed. We've got a facility now, but the reason we have this facility is so we can go find people that are drowning. So we can go go find the lost coins. So Jesus can bring the lost sheep in. So that the 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 prodigals can come home. This is what it's all about, Revolution Church. And this is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we're asking you this week, if God puts somebody on your heart, go share the gospel with them. If God puts somebody on your heart, go invite them to the launch next week at Revolution Church when we go to our new facility. What an opportunity God has given every single one of us to do this. Let me pray for you guys. Lord. I thank you so much for Revolution Church and thank you so much for every single person under the sound of my voice, God. I pray that we're a church that does not sit on the sidelines, but we remember the call and the mission you have given every single one of us. God, we pray for the service next week that it is standing room only and that for some people, maybe it'll be the first time ever they're going to hear the gospel. For some people, maybe it's been a long time since they've been home. And they're going to come home next week for the first time. God, help us to love those people, to reach those people, to be Jesus to those people. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week live. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.